Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, the community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Good morning. How's everyone this morning? That was that was very enthusiastic. I, I feel the same way. <laughs> well, if you don't know me, my name is Matthew, and it's an honor and a pleasure to be here this morning. Uh, would you pray with me? Lord, we come before you this morning. We thank you so much, Lord, for the second Sunday of Easter, this time that we get to celebrate the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, Father. And Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit from the four winds, Lord, and fill us, fill our minds, fill our hearts, fill our imaginations, Lord, with all that you would have for us to see and hear and know. Lord, may the palpability of your resurrection be known to us in our inner being, we pray this morning. In Christ's name, amen. I want to begin with a quote. I just want to like, warn you about this quote in advance. Okay. Is it not a sin for a creature to doubt the word of its maker? Is it not a crime and an insult to the divinity for me and Adam, a particle of dust, to dare to deny his words? Is it not the very summit of arrogance? an extremity of pride for a son of Adam to say, even in his heart, God, I doubt thy grace. God, I doubt thy love. God, I doubt thy power. And that quote goes on. Um, that, is from, that is from Charles Spurgeon. Another quote. Both the believer and the unbeliever share each in his own way, doubt and belief. If they do not hide from themselves and from the truth of their being, Neither can quite escape either doubt or belief. For the one, faith is present against doubt. For the other, through doubt and in the form of doubt. That's from Emeritus Pope Benedict XVI. And so I've opened with these two quotes to show sort of two extremes. In one sense, we have a representation from uh, Christian tradition from one to another. In another sense, we have a a representation of how doubt, belief, um, and unbelief are conceived in the Christian imagination throughout time. And what I'd like to do this morning is try to navigate between those two um, by trying to be faithful both to the scriptures and to the faith that the scriptures attest to, while simultaneously be faithful and sensitive to who we are as human beings. Uh, Because at least in my experience, um, both of these quotes ring true. I have embodied the first quote earlier in my life, and and the latter quote um, is more along where I am today. Um, And so that's sort of how I'm framing things this morning. Um, And so, uh, to begin, I want to start with what I would say are axioms, fundamental propositions that we must grasp and hold on to. First, temptation is not the same thing as sin. This is really important Christian truth. Second, the experience of doubt and unbelief can be temptation, and it need not be permanent. Third, the unbelief that is a sin is an abuse of our freedom through a willful, abiding unbelief, a refusal to ultimately believe in God and all that he has offered to us to believe. I want to say that one more time. The unbelief that is a sin, not the one that is a temptation, is an abuse of our freedom through a willful abiding unbelief, a refusal to ultimately believe in God and all that he has offered to us to believe. But even that can be overcome. Even that can be overcome. Even that is not permanent. Paul says as much in Romans 11. He says, even if they, Israel, if they do not continue in their unbelief, 
continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. And so what is belief? Belief is not a belief in propositions and statements. It's belief in God. When we confess the creed, we're, we're confessing our faith in the God, the living God, the one in whom we place our trust. Belief is active. It is ongoing. It is a living faith that we're called to. And it requires all of us, all of our humanity, every bit of us to take into account. We must look at our dignity and our depravity all at once. Paul says the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Sin does not take away our dignity, ultimately, right? Psalm 8, one of my favorite psalms in all the Bible. David looks up into the cosmos and the heavens, and he says, When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? What is humanity? Right? That you are mindful of him. Right? David's impulse is to say, I am seemingly nothing. And yet, he says, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than God. That's what Psalm 8 says. All at once we feel as if we're insignificant, and yet God tells us we're made in his image and his likeness, and we bear his, his glory in that sense. So God's expectation of belief is for those he has created in dignity and with dignity. And if Peter Parker's uncle was a pastor, he would say, with, okay, good, okay. So what does that mean? We have a, we, every one of us has a sense of the divine, right? The fact of our existence, our consciousness, our experience of that. We have an intellect, we have intelligence, rationality, imagination. C.S. Lewis said all of these things are inbreakings of the supernatural into our world, our natural world. Our desire for happiness, our moral capacities, our desire for justice, our power of will and our freedom. All of these things God calls upon into the act of believing but we know our subjective experience is one that doesn't always, it's a, it's a pull, a, a dance between the dignity and depravity. Paul says this, he says, in this tent, in our bodies, we groan. We long to put on the heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not, not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. We're all groaning between these two poles of our dignity and our depravity. And it's important to be mindful of the fact that not all doubters are the same, not all unbelievers are the same, and therefore not all doubts and not all forms of unbelief are the same. And so we must tread softly. And that's, that's what I'm hoping to do this morning. I believe the scriptures spe speak to the gamut of human experience from belief to doubt to unbelief and back again. And there are three words that I want to orient us this morning as we consider uh, the posture of sort of our soul and the, the health of our hearts. And the three words are this. Three words. Humiliation. Humiliation. Um, hubris. And humility. They're all different words. Humiliation. Humiliation, you guys know it well because we've experienced it. We have given it. It's to degrade it's to shame, it's to belittle ourselves and other people. This is not the way of God in the Bible. Paul says, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In the face of those who doubt, who waver in their faith, Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. The psalmist says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. In Mark, a man said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus didn't walk away from him and not heal his son. In fact, he healed his son. 
He took his, his grain of belief and he went with that. So our response, a Christian response, is not to humiliate ourselves and, and one another in shame when we struggle with doubt and unbelief, but rather to throw ourselves in the mercy of God. Second, hubris. Hubris. Hubris is pride. Hubris is an enlargement of ourselves. Hubris is an inflation of our ego. All of us, believers, non-believers, wherever we are, have expressed this in different, in different ways. Perhaps the most obnoxious is religious pride, right? You know it, right? Maybe you've delivered it. I, I've, I've been there, done that, right? Like the man who prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You fill in the blank whatever sin, right, the tax collector category uh, you want to replace that with. That is not Christian, uh, a Christian attitude that we should be embodying. Rather, we should be like Paul says, for but the grace of God go I. For but the grace of God go I. We define ourselves and the rest of reality in our image when we are embodying hubris, right? G.K. Chesterton said, the evil of pride is being out of proportion with the universe. It's to exalt ourselves so much that we're out of proportion with the universe. And so as it relates to the question of doubt, of belief, of unbelief, the peop- when we have hubris, we've already decided, we've already determined the rules of engagement with the question of God. We enlarge the self or some powers of ourselves beyond the scope of their, their limits, we circumscribe limits and the possibilities of our world. And a Christian response this would, be, would be to say, we are limiting and uh, abusing the gifts that God gives us when we do this. Both humiliation and hubris we want to avoid. And we want to land on humility. But what is humility? It's a right-sizing of ourselves. It's a proper estimation of ourselves in relation to the rest of the universe, in relation to God, in relation to others. In simple words, it's the truth of who we are, what God says about us. Think about Psalm 8 again, right? When I consider your heavens, what am I? I'm seemingly nothing, and yet I'm made in your image, right? Can't be removed. And that also includes, I think, humility includes looking at what we believe, why we believe it, the authorities we're placing our trust in. Every one of us, whether we're here believing in God or not, has some authority we're resting in. Some narrative that we're living, we're standing in some position in which we're trying to find meaning and purpose. What is that? Why? And so we have to ask these questions. And I think to ask them, I think, is to practice humility. And so all of us are on a journey. God's response is very different to each of us depending on where we are on that journey. If we're in a place of humiliation right now, know that God wants to lovingly lift us up, to lift us up to humility. If we're in, in hubris, he wants to mercifully bring us down to humility. And if we're in humility, which you shouldn't acknowledge, right? Okay. <laughs> uh, you probably already know that this mortal flesh, we groan and we stretch the limits of our dignity and our depravity. Um, and he simply wants to tenderly keep us there. And by God's grace, if we're there, however much we're there or not there, he wants to keep us there. And just know that our yes to God will falter at times and will be carried by grace when we remain in grace. We will mournfully permit our no his offer of belief because it's a no to his grace and his goodness and in our idleness and our deferral of a yes or a no always know that that will ultimately end in a yes or a no we have to make a decision about about god every one of us and so let's turn to john 20 because john 20 is our text for this morning and i've said too much already 
John 20 is an interaction with uh, Jesus and the, and the uh, Apostle Thomas. And if you have seen the, begin- the front of your bulletin, uh, that is the painting by Caravaggio, The Incredulity of St. Thomas. It is worth examining closely. Um, it is amazing, um, just the detail that Caravaggio uses. And it, it really captures, I think, the, 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 the ethos of this passage. And so there are two layers of this account I want us to focus on. The first one is Thomas's experience with Jesus. In every one of the resurrection accounts, uh, the, the, they're very unique. Uh, Jesus meets people in very special ways, uh, given their position. So Thomas's experience. And second, Thomas's experience in relation to John's overarching purpose in his narrative, in his gospel, and what that means for us. So if, as we jump in, in verse 19, we know that it's dark. We know the apostles or the disciples are gathered together. They've locked the doors. They're afraid of the Jewish leaders. They're frightened by the, uh, for their lives. They're not sure what's going on. Their Messiah has died. Allegedly, they've heard he's risen again. They're very perplexed. They're very confused. And it's in this moment, in their fear, that Jesus comes to them in verse 19 through 20. And he says, as uh, we heard read this morning so beautifully, peace be with you. Peace be with you. He calms their fears. He makes himself known to them. And it says that they were glad when they saw the Lord. I feel like that's such an understatement. Right? They were glad when they saw the Lord. Thank you. Okay. But here's, where's Thomas? Thomas isn't around. Right? In verse 24, we're told that Thomas was not present with the others in the first appearance to the disciples. And then when he hears, in verse 25, when they told him, we have seen the Lord, he says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This is pretty clear. Um, I hope it's clear to you that this is not doubting Thomas. This is unbelieving Thomas. <laughs> okay? <laughs> he's not doubting Thomas. Uh, he's unbelieving Thomas. But what is he unbelieving? What, is he, what does he believe? What does he not believe? I think it's important to be clear about that. Thomas does not disbelieve in God, right? He was a faithful Jewish person. Um, he was a faithful follower of Jesus as, as his rabbi, as his Messiah, but he didn't understand all of what that meant, right? He's following Jesus throughout his entire ministry, and in fact, he's still gathered together here with the disciples. He didn't flee. He didn't run away, right? Thomas, like others, including the apostle Paul, Saul, who had become Paul, he disbelieves the resurrection, he has no paradigm, no understanding of what this might mean. He has seen the raising of Lazarus, and you would think, oh, well, he did it with Lazarus. Why couldn't he do it with himself? But one thing to be mindful of is Lazarus was resuscitated, which, of course, maybe this is the paradigm that Thomas would have about Jesus if he if we've seen the Lord. But when we're talking about resurrection, we're talking about something entirely different. And so let's look at what Jesus does with Thomas as he returns. Before we look, how does he not confront Thomas? I think when this passage is treated, it has been treated in times past in a way that seems to trivialize or to sort of make overly simple belief and unbelief. Thomas, why don't you get it? Thomas, it's so easy. Just, just believe in the resurrection. It's not that easy. Jesus is not trivializing doubt and unbelief. He doesn't humiliate Thomas. He's meeting Thomas right where he is, and he is also doing so for our sake. He's not denigrating human reason. In fact, later in, the, in the, um, the book of Acts, as the apostles go forward into the uh, Jewish synagogues, as they go into the Greco-Roman intellectual centers of the world, they are going to reason about the resurrection. They're going to reason about the resurrection. They're going to engage in dialogue, intellectual dialogue, and they're going to pr- um, propose the gospel in that way. 
Jesus is not against uh, our rational inquiries. But a lot is happening here that John does not want us to miss. Um, and I think that Thomas, as he's confronted with Jesus, his intellect, his imagination has to be expanded, and so John is inviting us to expand our own. Friends, this is the climax of, of the Gospel of John. Uh, the climax of the Gospel of John, stretching from the prologue all the way to now, everything has been moving until this particular moment. If you turn in your text to verse uh, 30 and 31, uh, it says, as John ends this chapter, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's those words that should frame Jesus' response to Thomas. When, when Jesus says to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He's inviting not only Thomas, but he's inviting us, the future readers of this gospel, into the same belief encounter that Thomas himself would have. And that belief will give us life. And so as we look, if you have your Bibles, you, if you were to turn briefly to chapter 20, verse 1, we're told uh, that on, now on the first day of the week, Mary Madeline came to the tomb. John is drawing our attention to the first day of the week. Later in verse 19, he says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. Later, in verse 26, eight days later. John is drawing our attention to the days. This is really, really, really important. Um, the first day of the week, of course, is Sunday, thank you, thank you, Randy. First day of the week is Sunday, right? Eight days later, you would count the days, uh, beginning with the day, moving forward a week later. Eight days later, Thomas is met by Jesus on Sunday. If we go back to the prologue of John's gospel, we're told in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. John is purposely bringing us back to the narrative of creation, the old creation, in which God spoke his, word, uh, his world into existence by his divine Word. And on that, and of course we know that how many days did God take flesh would eventually come to the cross and would die. And he dies on what day, do you know? Friday, right? He dies on Friday. Good Friday is, is the day of his death. He dies on the sixth day, right? Pontius Pilate on the day of his death, as he presents Jesus to the crowd, says, Behold the man, right? Behold the man, behold the human. What did God do on day six? Who did he create? Man, he created Adam on day six. He created the human on day six, right? How was Eve created? From the, the side of Christ, or from the side of Christ, from the side of Adam, right? From the side of the first Adam. Remember, as um, we preached before, John is drawing our attention to the side of Christ. He's drawing our attention to all these details because there is from the side of Christ the church is born just like it was from the side of Adam that Eve was born, right? The church is the new Eve, the church is the mother of all who live, and it's that day six, day seven, and now day eight, right? The resurrection happens on day eight. Eight days later is when Thomas is met by Jesus. The resurrection is the first day of the week, Sunday, which the early Christians would call the eighth day. But what does that mean? Well, let's take a look more closely. How many times does Jesus say to, th to peace to Thomas? Three times, right? Peace be with you, peace be with you, peace be with you. Yes, he's calming their fears, but he's doing far more than that, right? He is bringing his peace, he's bringing his shalom. The beginning of a cosmic reversal is taking shape here in front of them, right? All of what we long and uh, groan for, for the redemption of this world, the redemption of our body from uh, death, decay, and sin, Jesus has enacted, Jesus has begun in his resurrection. He says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you in verse 21. 
What does that mean? Well, in the same way that God labored to create the old world, He is laboring now again through His Son, through the Word that spoke the old creation into existence. He's now laboring to create a new world. God is laboring to bring the new creation through the Word made flesh, but also through us. Jesus does the strangest thing in John 20. This is like straight out of Narnia, right? What does he do? He breathes on them. Isn't that strange? He breathes on them, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. As Maddie read this morning in uh, Ezekiel 37, right, the prophecy that God would send his Holy Spirit and breathe upon the people of Israel, the dead people of Israel, was to reintegrate and to remake a new people for himself in the future. This is happening now. But it's also meant to echo back to Genesis. After God made Adam and after God formed Adam and created Eve, what did he do with Adam? He breathed into him the breath of life, and then he became a living being. So here, when when Thomas is encountering Christ, he's encountering the one who is breathing life into a new people, a new body of believers, a new Adam, who will go out into the world and labor for the new creation, the resurrection life, in which he is bringing it to the world. It's that invitation that he offers to us. But as we look more closely, uh, verse 27. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand and place it in my side. Place it in my side. That's a little weak. The verb here is a strong verb. It means to bear a load, to thrust into my side. What Jesus is saying is, Thomas, I'm here. Give me your best. Push, prod, poke, investigate. He can handle it. If he is the word of life, if he is the word made flesh, we need not fear our questions. We need not fear our inquiries. We need not fear that he's going to be afraid of them. That's a small, if, when we're afraid for God, that means our vision of God is very small. People who defend God in such an extent that they're so afraid that our questions might in some way impinge upon him, they're afraid that God's really small. God is not small. If he is the resurrected one, he will endure. And so Thomas is brought front and center to the door, the aperture of a new world. The, world has, the, the word has become flesh and is dwelling right in front of him. The new creation begun. Just a few weeks ago, we took, um, scientists took a picture of the black hole. You guys familiar with this? Wasn't that amazing? It's like incredible, right? And just think about that, the black hole. The international community went wild. Basically, the whole world went wild, scientific community especially. But we were able to capture an image of an invisible region, an object of space-time so dense, whose gravitational pull was so strong that nothing, not even light, can escape it. I want to watch Interstellar. That's what I want to do, like right now. (laughs) You probably want to watch Interstellar right now, too. But uh, scientists call the event horizon the point of no return, the boundary at which the gravitational pull renders escape impossible. The event horizon of that black hole. Friends, this is Thomas's event horizon. This is the event horizon. He is the pioneer being plummeted into the side of Christ, right, in which there's no return. He's being drawn in. 
that my Lord and my God. And we are drawn into that. Like Thomas, Jesus wants us to meet him. One translation of his text has Jesus say, give me your hand. Give me your hand. Right? And in the Caravaggio print, Caravaggio seems to pick up on that, right? Jesus pulling him in. Right? Give me your hand. He invites us with Thomas to give him our hand and with all of who we are and all the powers that he gave us to poke, to prod, to probe, to boldly go where so many have gone before. Okay? little Star Trek uh, nod there. So to come home to Jesus is to journey with his church wherever we are. Remember, the side of Christ is the place where the church is born. Jesus is inviting us to enter into that community, that new and living community that he's inbreathed by his Holy Spirit to journey and walk wherever we are, right? To poke and to prod, right? If he is the God, the eternal word made flesh, we need not fear anything too hard for him. He can handle our questions. So friends, this is our event horizon just the same. It's the event horizon of the entire cosmos. It means that much. When we say we believe in the resurrection, we say we're believing in the remaking of a new world. Nothing less. To believe that, of course, is to require a great deal of us. And so to, 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 to treat doubt and unbelief and belief in a kind of simple way is to do a disservice, I think, to the reality of the resurrection. It means everything. And Thomas, as you know, he'd be one of the earliest apostles to go off and preach the gospel and to die traditionally, as is understood, in Asia. He took the gospel with him. And so what is the eighth day? The eighth day is now. The eighth day is here. And the eighth day endures because the dawning of a new creation has happened. So let us rise and journey with Thomas and with the fellowship of all the saints and skeptics and sinners and strivers who have ever seen, heard, looked upon, and touched the word of life, who is our Lord and our God. Amen.